Hello, my name is Russell Warren. I head up the tax team at Travis Smith. I'd like to welcome you to part two of the 13th episode in our Travelling Seamlessly Global Mobility podcast series. In this series, members of the Travis Smith Global Mobility team will talk to you about the implications of moving your people and operations into and out of different countries, and also look at situations where members of your team may need to work in more than one country. In this episode, Sylvana van der Vel and Siv Devakumar sit down with Choate, Hall and Stewart to discuss the key features that distinguish UK and US approaches to the structuring of management incentive plans in a private equity context. When dealing with international management teams, creating incentive plans that are tax efficient across multiple jurisdictions is the priority. However, the differing tax treatment of UK design structures and other jurisdictions can raise some issues. Shota here to help us shed some light on some of these considerations in the US, and will be sharing with us the US approach to several common aspects of a typical share incentive arrangement. To find out more about the issues discussed in this podcast, the Travis Smith Global Mobility Team, and how we can help with your global mobility projects, you can visit our website, www.travismith.com, and search for global mobility. And now over to Sid and Silvana to introduce our guests. Hi everyone, and welcome to the latest podcast in the Global Mobility series, which is part two of a two-part episode on US tax. I'm Siv Devakumar. And I'm Sylvana Vanderveld. We are both senior associates in our transactional tax team here at Traverse Smith. Today, we're very pleased to be joined for the second time by Dave Mollo Christensen from Choate Hall and Stewart, together with his colleague, John Chambers, for a discussion on some of the US tax points to look out for in relation to management equity incentives, particularly in the context of a typical private equity transaction. Thank you for joining us, Dave and John. I know you introduced yourself in part one of this episode, but why don't you give us a reminder about Choate and your tax practice? Thanks very much, Sylvan and Savannah, for inviting me to join you again today. Um, Again, I'm Dave Mala Christensen, and I lead the Executive Compensation and Employee Benefits Practice at Choate. Um, today, I also have my colleague, John Chambers, who's a principal in our tax group with me today to address some of the more corporate tax points of our discussion. Uh, a little bit about Choate. Um, Choate is a premier law firm that provides national and international representation to industry-leading clients, practicing at the top of the market in a select group of areas, including middle market private equity and M&A. Some of the country's best known and most active private equity sponsors and their portfolio companies trust Choate to guide them through all stages of a transaction and to provide the strategic advice needed to meet their business objectives. As for me, uh, I have a broad practice advising on compensation and benefits issues, both in a transactional and ongoing advisory context, but my primary focus relates to compensation and benefits issues that arise in M&A transactions, especially private equity. And thanks, Dave. I'm John Chambers. I'm a principal in the tax group at Choate, and I focus on core tax aspects of all private equity and M&A transactions. Thanks both for joining us today. So as mentioned, this is episode is part two of our two-part episode covering U.S. tax. In part one, we covered the differences between the U.K. and U.S. tax net and considerations in each jurisdiction on setting up a management incentive plan, or MIP. Part two today will focus on the tax points to think about when exiting that MIP, including tax-efficient rollover and some tax traps to look out for. If you missed part one, you can access it on our website. As we discussed in part one, one of the key considerations in setting up a management incentive plan is achieving a capital gains tax return in the growth in value of shares on an exit. 
In the UK, assuming the managers paid unrestricted market value and entered into their Section 431 elections on acquisition of their shares, you would expect the sale of those shares on an exit to qualify for capital treatment. Savannah, is there anything we should look out for here which could trip us into employment income territory? Good question. Yes, there is. Um, while it's correct that a sale to a third party would be expected to be treated as capital, there are some situations where employment tax charges could arise. The first thing to mention is that capital treatment is only available where managers are receiving no more than market value for their shares on an exit. This will generally be accepted to be the case where shares are sold as part of the sale of the company to a third party and management are receiving their pro rata entitlement under the articles. However, care needs to be taken where management receive more than their pro rata share. If that is the case, there's a strong chance that at least a portion of management's proceeds would be subject to employment income tax. The other thing to watch out for is an earnout being paid as part of the consideration. An earnout is generally some form of consideration paid on deferred terms, provided that the target business achieves certain performance goals. The tax treatment of these can be complex. While it should be possible for an earnout to form part of the capital consideration on the disposal of shares, the risk of employment tax instead will need consideration where the earnout is only payable to managers, which can often be the case. Are there similar issues in the US with these consideration structures? Yes, Siv, there are similar tax issues in the US with these consideration structures. In the US, the tax treatment generally depends on whether the payment is in the nature of compensation for services or in the nature of sale proceeds from the disposal of shares. While the analysis depends on all of the facts and circumstances, there are two key factors that weigh heavily on the tax treatment. The first is whether the earnout payment is made pro rata to all shareholders, including shareholders who are not managers or other service providers, and whether the earnout is payable subject to continued employment. If an earnout is paid non pro rata to managers, or if the earnout is subject to continued employment, there is likely to be significant risk that the payment could be treated as compensation for U.S. tax purposes. Thanks for that, John. That sounds really similar to the UK position. There is another potential employment tax trap we are aware of on the sale of shares by US taxpaying managers, being Section 280G. Yes, this is something we often come across on sales of companies, and we understand that if not dealt with properly, it can result in an additional 20% tax on certain bonuses or even sale proceeds received by managers. It also results in a corresponding loss of the compensation deduction a company would otherwise be entitled to take in connection with paying such amounts. Dave, can you tell us a little more about these rules and any further consequences if 280G applies? Yes, Siv. Section 280G, often called the golden parachute tax, applies when certain individuals, generally senior executives, receive, you know, quote unquote, too much from an IRS perspective in connection with the change of control of a company. More specifically, 280G applies to any disqualified individual, um, which means First, officers of the company, generally senior executives, and we often you know, consider that by analogy to people who would be public company executives from an SEC rules perspective. Um, the next category are highly compensated individuals, which means individuals making more than the IRS threshold, which for 2023 is $150,000. Um, the number of individuals who can fall under this category, though, is capped at the lesser of 1% of the company's employees or 250 individuals total. Practically speaking, that means the 1% test usually caps this at folks who would probably be picked up as officers in any event. Um, and then the last category that we have to look at are directors or others who hold 1% or more of the company's equity. 
as you noted, you know, the provision hits both ways by assessing a 20% excise tax on the individuals who were picked up by 2DG and the company losing the benefit of the compensation tax deduction it would otherwise have been entitled to in connection with paying compensation to those individuals. Uh, the analysis of whether a company has undergone a change of control for 2DG purposes is often technical, but for PE-owned companies, generally the sale of a portfolio company will constitute a change of control for 2DG purposes. Uh, the payments that are potentially picked up by 2DG, generally referred to as parachute payments, include things like any unvested amounts that are payable in connection with the transaction um, and items like proceeds from unvested profits interests or other equity held at an upper level holding company. Um, transaction bonuses or severance benefits payable if someone is terminated in connection with the transaction are also included. Um, and I'll just say again, that those, those are examples of things, but really any amounts that somebody is receiving in connection with the transaction, which just to be clear, in connection with, with doesn't mean only at the timing of the closing of the transaction, it can pick up things prior to or following the actual transaction. And then in terms of when the excise tax is going to apply, you know, too much from an IRS perspective means more than three times the individual's average compensation from the prior five years. Um, if the excise tax does apply though, it's important to note that the tax is on any amount in excess of one times that person's compensation, not their three X overall threshold. Clearly, that's quite a punitive tax and one that any manager would be keen to prevent arising if possible. Are there any exceptions to Section 280G that can help companies steer clear of the penalties associated with excess parachute payments? It is, but thankfully for private companies, the 20% excise tax and company side loss deduction can be avoided if an equity holder approval process is undertaken. Um, that process has a few steps. First, the individuals to whom 280G parachute payments could be paid um, assuming those amounts are in excess of three times their limit, um, must waive the right to receive the payments unless the equity holders of the 2DG change control company approve the receipt by the individuals of those amounts. Um, the next step is that an information statement detailing all of the actual and potential amounts that disqualified individuals could receive must be prepared and provided to all the equity holders entitled to vote in connection with the transaction. Um, on a practical note, this can be problematic in some companies with a large employee shareholder base because senior executives are very sensitive to their compensation details being disclosed. Uh, avoiding that disclosure requires pre-planning by doing things like providing employees with non-voting equity. Um, in many PE-held companies where there's a partnership or LLC is the sole shareholder of the operating company though, this typically just requires disclosure to an approval by the manager or GP of the holding company, which practically speaking means the private equity firm. Um, the last step is that the records of approval must be obtained via votes or written consents from the required equity holders, and that in total needs to be 75% or more of the individuals who are entitled to vote. Um, note, if the equity holders themselves are entities, there's an additional process we have to go through where they may need to have their, their upper tier equity holders also approve on their behalf. Those rules are pretty technical though and need to be accessed for each transaction. Thanks for talking us through that, Dave. There's one other U.S. legislative restriction which we've come across where there's a management incentive plan with U.S. elements. We understand Section 409A, which relates to deferred compensation, can come into play where there are options or phantom schemes. And like 280G, this can result in an additional 20% tax. Dave, can you tell us a little about the operation of Section 409A? I'm happy to, so. Section 409A is a tax code provision that applies to many forms of deferred compensation. Broadly, it places limits on the ability of companies and their service providers to change the time at which deferred compensation, i.e. amounts that are payable in a future year, can be paid. 
a failure to comply with foreign NA can, as you noted, result in the employee or service provider being subject to a 20% excise tax, as well as having the deferred compensation included in their income at an earlier time than intended. So in order to stay on the right side of Section 409A, what can we do to ensure compliance with the deferred compensation rules and avoid triggering the excise tax charges? Broadly, before putting in place any equity or compensation arrangement that can be paid in a future year to a U.S. individual, which for part one of our discussion includes folks who are not in the U.S. but are U.S. citizens, green card holders, or otherwise U.S. tax subject, um, consult with me or your U.S. counsel. Foreign aid broadly applies to deferred compensation arrangements where a legally binding right, which includes the right to potentially earn something, you know, for example, an annual bonus, is entered into or applies, again, you know, an annual bonus is an example, um, where, you know, it could be something that they're getting under an employment agreement, it could cover multiple years. Um, but, you know, those amounts are something that will or could be paid in the future year. There are generally two types of arrangements that fall within foreign aid's scope, something we call short-term deferrals and things that are actually, quote unquote, non-qualified deferred compensation. Uh, Short-term deferrals are arrangements where the deferred compensation amount is payable within a short period, generally by March 15th of the year after which the the amount vests. So for 2023 bonuses, for example, this would mean amounts that would be payable in 2024, unless someone has to be employed on the date bonuses are paid to receive it. Um, For equity awards, to be a good short-term deferral, if an award vested this year, it would need to be settled, you know, actual, i.e. actual equity or cash for its value delivered by early 2024. Non-qualified deferred compensation amounts are amounts designed to be paid in a future year after being vested. These are less common in PE-held companies, but one example of a non-qualified deferred compensation arrangement is a non-qualified pension that's payable on retirement. The, the key point with non-qualified deferred compensation arrangements is that they can only be paid on permissible events which are limited to a change control, a separation from service, a fixed time or schedule of payments, death, disability, or an unforeseen emergency. The first two are the most common relevant payment events, and without getting into detail, both have technical definitions that need to be complied with. Again, non-qualified deferred compensation arrangements are less common in PE-backed companies, but the key takeaway is anytime compensation will or could be paid in a future year, it's important to discuss with your counsel to make sure the amount is either a short-term deferral or is a compliant, non-qualified deferred compensation arrangement. Thanks for setting that out, Dave. So we've talked about achieving capital returns on an exit, but often in private equity acquisitions, the management team will be expected to reinvest a portion of their proceeds in the new buyer structure. From a tax perspective, management are clearly keen to achieve this on a tax-free basis. Otherwise, they could end up with a dry tax charge on the portion of the proceeds which must be reinvested. Silvana, is this possible for UK taxpayers? Yes, in UK terms, happily, there is a tried and tested route to achieve this reinvestment in a tax-efficient manner by means of a tax-free rollover. Without going into too much detail, this generally involves the management team selling a portion of their shares in exchange for loan notes in the buying entity, which usually will not be the entity in which they will hold their final investment within a PE structure. They then roll those loan notes up the structure by way of exchange until they receive shares in the top company in which they and the private equity house will hold their investment. The exchange of shares for loan notes takes place on a tax neutral basis and the management team can effectively roll over any gain on their shares in the target entity until such time as they sell their new shares in the buyer structure. There are certain conditions which must be met in order to benefit from the tax free rollover, but generally where the buyer is acquiring not less than 25% of the target company, 
the beneficial tracts treatment should be available. That is, provided the rollover is taking place for genuine commercial reasons, which we would usually expect to be the case on a third party acquisition. Our understanding is that this structure will not work in a tax efficient manner for US taxpayers, but that there's a way in which a tax efficient reinvestment can be achieved in the US. Can you tell us a bit about that, John? That's right, Siv. The typical UK structure generally will not result in a tax deferred rollover for US taxpayers. From a US tax perspective, there are a handful of specific structures that may be available to achieve a tax deferred rollover for US taxpayers. Depending on the entity classification of the BIDCO for US tax purposes, the target for US tax purposes, whether the BIDCO and the target are incorporated in the United States or not, and the mix of cash versus rollover shares issued in the transaction. Now, the detail around these transaction structures is too much to get into into this discussion. But there is one fact pattern that we often see on matters with Travers that would likely result in a tax deferred rollover for U.S. taxpayers. In the case of a U.K. Topco, which wholly owns the U.K. limited company Bidco and a U.K. limited company Target, um, in most cases, which also would likely have a U.S. subsidiary. Under these facts, the U.S. managers could exchange their shares in the U.K. Target for shares in the Topco directly, and the Topco would then contribute the Target shares down to Bidco. This exchange generally could be tax deferred for the U.S. managers if the existing Topco shareholders contribute cash to Topco in connection with the transaction and the U.S. managers contributing shares each collectively own at least 80% of the shares of Bidco after the transaction. Additionally, any U.S. managers who own 5% or more of the Bidco shares after the transaction must enter into what's called a gain recognition agreement. This is an agreement with the IRS whereby such managers agree to pay tax plus interest on any built-in gain in the exchange if the BIDCO disposes of the target assets or shares or another triggering event occurs within five years of the transaction. Will this option generally be available on a typical private equity acquisition or are there certain conditions which must be met? The U.S. tax-free transaction rules are very complex and highly dependent on the specific facts of the transaction. While it may be common to achieve a tax deferred rollover for U.S. managers in many private equity transactions, tax-free rollover is highly dependent and fact-specific and in certain cross-border transactions. For example, if there's a U.K. Bidco acquiring a U.S. LLC that is taxed as a partnership, tax-free rollover may not be possible. Okay, thanks, John. I think what, from what we have seen, where we do meet those conditions, um, it's generally possible to achieve both a UK and a US tax-free rollover on the same transaction, where you have UK companies as the top co, bid co and target. This would generally involve Topco becoming party to the acquisition documents as a buyer in order to acquire the relevant portion of US management's shares, which reflect the amount they're required to reinvest. Although one point to be wary of on the UK side when combining the rollover methods is to ensure that Bidco still acquires at least 25% of the target directly, so as not to jeopardise the UK position. From a UK tax perspective, it should also be possible for Topco to transfer the target shares down the stack of companies to Bidco on a tax-neutral basis. One final point to note on the UK side is it's possible to obtain advance clearance from HMRC that they accept that the rollover transaction is taking place for genuine commercial reasons and therefore they won't challenge the tax treatment on that basis. Is there a similar procedure in the US, John? There is a similar procedure in the US called a private letter ruling or PLR um, for certain issues, but parties rarely apply for PLRs in connection with the transaction. In the US, the PLR process is quite cumbersome and the IRS could take up to six months or more to issue the ruling. 
um, making it impractical in most private equity transactions. There are also a number of issues that the IRS will not rule on, including the general overall tax-free qualification of the transaction, but the IRS will issue on certain significant issues within a tax-free transaction. Because of the timing and the limited scope of these PLRs, practically we don't view PLRs as an option in private equity transactions. Okay, thanks, John. One further thing that is worth discussing in the context of rollover and management reinvestment is the instruments which management will acquire in the purchaser entity. Management will generally roll over into a strip of equity, which will include some ordinary shares and a preferred instrument. That preferred instrument could be a loan note or a preference share. Either instrument will generally have a coupon attached, which will accrue over the life of the investment and be paid on a future exit or an earlier redemption. Siv, is there a preference for UK managers between loan notes and preference shares from a tax perspective? While there are various commercial factors to be taken into account in determining which instrument might be more appropriate in the circumstances, from a pure UK tax perspective, a preference share is likely to be a better choice. In either case, management won't be subject to tax in the UK unless and until they realise a return on the instrument. In respect of a loan note, the manager will be subject to income tax at rates of up to 45% on the interest on the loan notes when it's paid which is usually when the loan notes are redeemed or sold on an exit. In respect of preference shares, if the accruing coupon on those shares is paid or they're redeemed or repurchased, the accrued coupon will be subject to tax at dividend rates of up to 39.35%. However, if a manager sells their preference shares on an exit, they should have a good argument that capital gains tax should apply. There are anti-avoidance provisions which may apply to treat the return on preference shares as dividend or interest income, though, which would need to be considered at the time of sale. What would the position be in the US, John? I understand loan notes may be tax inefficient for US managers. There are similar tax inefficiencies with loan notes for US managers. Unless a significant portion of the loan note interest accrual is payable in cash on at least an annual basis, the accrual of interest generally is taxed on an annual basis at ordinary income rates of up to 37% federal plus additional state taxes. In respect of preference shares, the accrual of the coupon generally would not be taxable until re realization on the investment. When the accruing coupon on the preference shares is paid, the payment generally would be taxed as a dividend for U.S. tax purposes at long-term federal capital gains rates of 23.8%. If the preference shares are sold or repurchased, the payment generally is taxed as capital gains as well at the same rate. There are anti-abuse rules for preference shares, however, that for this purpose, there are anti-abuse rules for preference shares that are debt-like for U.S. tax purposes. If the shares, for example, have a put right for the holder, a call right for the issuer, or if the shares have a fixed maturity date, they could be treated as debt-like. If the preference shares are debt-like, the tax consequences are similar to those of an actual loan note. Well, I think that brings us to the end of part two of our episode. Thank you to Dave and John for all of your insights today. We've loved having you on the podcast. We hope this has been a useful summary of some of the key aspects of UK and US taxation in relation to exiting management incentive plans in a private equity context. Dave, where can listeners find you if they have any questions on what they have heard from you today? Thanks, Silvana. Listeners can find me or John by Googling our names in Choate or searching on our website, www.choate.com. They can also reach me via email at dmalochristensen at choate.com or john at jchambers at choate.com. Thanks again, Dave and John, and thank you for listening. If you have any questions for Travis Smith about what we've discussed today, you can reach Silvana and me 
or the rest of the Global Mobility team through the Travis Smith website.